You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. I am so excited about our show tonight because I'm going to I'm going to have queen status on the show this evening. So you hear every week you join and we talk about a myriad of things, issues that are impacting Black America. Tonight, we're going to be able to get to the heart of the matter of what's happening here in Washington State, in the Washington State Legislature. And so for those who don't really follow politics or who are learning about it and following the show here, um, we're in the middle of session, legislative session right now. I believe this is a longer session than I think the odd years or X amount of weeks and the even years or X amount. But we are so fortunate because for us as black community, for us as black people, to see progress happen, we need a queen in every facet of this ecosystem in our society. We have a queen that is joining us this evening who is uh, that she is the CEO of FMS Global Strategy. She's the chief lobbyist. Her name is Paula Sardinas. She's on with us this evening to talk to us about what she is seeing and some landmark things that are happening here in Washington State. So I want to bring in Paula uh, with us first, and I'm also going to welcome in our commentators with us this evening. We have Joy Stanford uh, here with us. She's going to join us this first this whole show with us. Stephanie Coverson is here with us as well. Um, and so we're going to have a conversation about what is happening in Washington State. Many of you know Joy and I both ran for office too, so that's our chops in politics. That's why we focus a lot of this on politics. But we're excited to have all of these queens with us this evening to talk about all of these issues and things that are happening in Black America. So welcome back to Heartbeat, Paula Sardinas. Good evening, Joy and Stephanie. Thank you for joining me this evening to have this dialogue with our Queen Paula. Hey, Paula. Oh, my God. It is so amazing to be here with you all tonight on the first day of Women's History Month. And, Cindy, mm -hmm. we are going to make history tonight because you're going to get a scoop. Something monumental is happening today. After 10 years in cannabis in Washington State, we fought very hard to get social equity. So today, 45 licenses will open up in Washington State and Black Washingtonians, BIPOC Washingtonians will have an opportunity to apply for those licenses. But Cindy, yesterday, Senate Bill 5080, led by Ollie Garrett of the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board and, respond, and sponsored by Senator Rebecca Saldana of the 34th Legislative District, cleared the Washington Senate. That bill will make the 45 licenses available today portable. It will make 52 more retail licenses available and it will offer 100 producer licenses available to the BIPOC community. It will extend social equity until 2032, replacing the three years that we lost because of the task force work. And it'll also continue to provide technical assistance, making Washington's social equity program one of the best in the nation. It's been held by people throughout the country. This bill passed last night around 6.30 p.m. And it's now headed to the House. So we are breaking that on your show today. Happy Women's <laughs> And I'm emotional. I have my tissue here. <laughs> a, lot, a, lot, a lot of tears. Um, it was a product of the Social Equity Task Force that I used to co-chair. Um, there was a bill last year that didn't make it out of the rules. And so this is going to be life-changing for Black men and women, BIPOC men and women, who for 10 years felt unseen and unheard. And when I th that bill passed on the last day of Black History Month, and I knew I was going to be on your show. I was like, this is monumental. So hello, Women's History Month. Women's <laughs> in making history. <laughs> wow. Yes, I love That's it. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, 50, 80. Still got to get through the house. But yes, we are we yeah. are making history um, on pace to be like New York and Illinois and California and Massachusetts with a, a social equity program that will make a difference and create generational wealth for those families who have borne the brunt of the war on drugs. And now they'll have a part of this billion dollar industry. 
unbelievable, right? Like talk about making progress. And you talk have about the first interview, not Cairo, not King Five. Cindy <laughs> We're on Heartbeat this evening. We are on Converge Media this evening, breaking this live. Breaking about this, live. this is so huge. I mean, this is why Black media matters. This is why That's we right. talk about these issues every week because this is us. Our communities have been impacted by it. And it is us, Paula, it is you. It is people down in Olympia helping fight and driving. Look, Ollie Garrett, too, a big congratulations to her, too, uh, for helping make this monumental change. Now, we have to get, let's talk about what this all means, because to have access to that many licenses and in order for us to achieve equity, we've got to get the uh, 45 licenses. we got to get people to apply for them and start. That's right. Um, right. The, the application opens today and I'm one of the mentors. And this is this is why this is so important. There's 45 licenses of the 45 licenses. Um, only 20 or so of those licenses are operable. What does that mean? Approximately 25 of those licenses are located in areas of bands and moratorium and they're movable in the counties. But it doesn't matter if you if you move your license and there's a ban and a moratorium and you can't use the license. This bill will allow you to move that license anywhere where jurisdiction will take that license. We know that people want to be in Seattle. They want to be in Bellevue, they want to be in Tacoma, they want to be in Clark County. So um, this is really the community's legislation. So many folks, I mean, folks like Breon Corbray, so many folks that I know, like Darling Conley, her husband, um, Julius, people like um, Peter Manning. There's so many folks that I could think of, Mike Asai, that came to us over the years and said, hey, Paula, we were left out. Adrian Washington, Willie Smith in Eastern Washington, folks whose faces and names you've never heard of emailed and called and they told us our stories. We spoke to more than 2000 Washingtonians and they made a difference. They reached out, they reached out to Ollie, they reached out to David Postman, they reached out to uh, Jim Valderoff, they, they reached out to the former here and they said, you know, we need a program that works for us. And so for over the past three years, we've been trying to craft something to say, how can we make a program that works for all of the people and not just some and that's what Senate Bill 5080 does. Um, Senator Rebecca Saldana was able to do something that we hardly ever see happen. She got Republicans to vote for that bill in the Senate. So it is a bipartisan bill. And so when that bill heads to the House, it says that Republicans in Eastern Washington, Republicans in Clark County, they see the value in making sure that equity works for those BIPOC members of their district. This is going to be a really good program. So we're super excited. Well, it's a significant economic engine, right? And so, I mean, the Republican Party would be a fool to not support it because, of, you know, anyhow, I'm not. We, gonna... we have, let me be clear. We have 15 Republicans to vote no, and that, that's substantial. But I don't want to um, discount people like Senator Curtis King, um, Senator Ann Rivers. Oh, wow. That, that, yeah, I mean, there were 19 Republicans in the Senate and we had 15 to vote no. These are tough votes. Uh, but when they stood up and they said, you know, this is, you know, we have large bastions of Latinos in our community. We have, you know, veterans in our community. We have women. We have people that this matters to. And they said the bill is not perfect, but we're willing to stand and take this vote. That matters because that's going to help us when we yeah. get to the house. I mean, again, it is hard. And, and Joy, you know, I don't have to tell you, we do environmental justice policy together. It is really difficult to get Republican votes in that in that body in Olympia. And so this is a, a monumental yeah. win for us. We still got to clear this bill right. in the house. But if this passes, you will have a better social equity program today than than what you had in the previous years. And it'll be a program that I think is going to work better for Washingtonians and, and hundreds more opportunities for generational wealth than what we have today. So, Cindy, this is monumental. I, I could not be more proud. Awesome. I'd, I'd like to see this flow, though, over to other issues. Um, not just the cannabis, but I'd like to see that social equity flow throughout the bills that come before our Senate and our House um, and have that have that component of social equity. Well, it, it's, it's a beautiful segue because we have been meeting um, with our, our dear friend, Majority Leader Andy Billick, and what we've been talking about is every piece of policy has to be seen through the lens of equity, period. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Not equality. That's what we need. Yeah. Equity. Equity is when you look at the structural yeah. and systemic barriers that racism creates. It is woven into the fabric of every constitution in the United States like a thread. 
it caused redlining, it causes food insecurity. It says that women were paid less than men. Let's talk about the Lilly Ledbetter Act, right? It says that women don't get to make their own reproductive decisions. Right. It causes the school to prison pipeline. It's the reason that we saw Tyree Nichols killed by black police officers because that structural racism is taught to police officers, whether they're a black or white okay. officers. Right. And right. so we have to deconstruct racism by saying, when we look at public policy, you should not be making policies for us and about us without us. Without so us. every bill that goes through the House and the Senate should be viewed through the lens of equity. How does this bill impact the least of us? And what is the outcome of that policy on the wholeness mm. of Black life, Latino life, transgender life, gay life, women life, poor life, I mean, socioeconomic, all the constructs. They have not been doing that. And how does that impact us when no one is killed, Joy, by police, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do we look at that? I would, so that's groundbreaking and amazing um, that those conversations are even happening, uh, frankly, in Olympia and I would love to hear any of the backstory that you could share around how folks, um, where the light bulb came from, like how did this movement begin? Um, how did it catch fire to, to move forward? Because um, that's just, that's uh, incredible that those conversations are, are happening and there's those understandings and now we're, seeing bills and legislation starting to move forward um, with that foundation? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Stephanie, I came to Washington in 2016 to be the lobbyist for the Credit Union Association. Um, I walked into uh, the room and I remember it was a, a big long table in the course building and it was a room of white men. And I remember standing there and someone thought that I was there to serve the coffee. Nobody gave me a seat. <laughs> Wonderful <laughs> lobbyist by the name of Denny Elias, and he said, get up and let her sit down. She's here to represent the credit unions. And I remember the look that came over their face because no black woman had ever represented financial services. And at that moment, I realized I'm in a democratic state where people claim to be progressive. And not one of these white men, except for Denny Eliason, who is one of the most honorable people I've ever met, even offered me a seat. And I said, this is what I'm dealing with here. And how that came about is I'm from the South and the Northeast. I say what I mean and I mean what I say. I was unapologetically black. And so I entered the space by saying, I'm not going to apologize for you for being black. I'm not gonna apologize to you for being a woman. I'm here to advocate in the financial services space for policies that are better for black people. We need to look at how credit happens. We need to look at a cooperative model of how we do things. And banks had at that time to me, a chokehold on credit. And I remember people telling me that, you know, your style won't work in the Pacific Northwest. You're gonna be viewed as brash. You're gonna be viewed as abrupt. And I said, I really don't give a damn. Um, and I was able to get policies done in 18 months where they had a 10 year agenda. I was able to move things that within two years, I left my job at the Credit Union Association because everything they thought that it would take me 10 years to do, I did in 18 months and went back to running my own firm. And so how I was able to do it is I refused to be silenced. I refused to be told what I could do, what I could not do, and I refused to be relegated to a box. You have to be willing to be un unapologetically black and to make people uncomfortable. And That's right. I had passive aggressive whiteness. You have to be willing to approach white fragility and say to them, you're, you're being a little fragile in order to impact change and to say, I'm coming for the recompense and the reparation. I'm coming for what you owe black people. And I'm not gonna leave until I get it because I'm not going anywhere. And that has produced some incredible changes in policies. It's produced social equity. It's produced $200 million in CRA. It's produced millions of dollars in innovative policies. And I'll talk to you about our latest $100 million asset we've got going. But what I've learned about this policy that a closed mouth doesn't get fed. And that if you are passive aggressive, what they've come to expect from the black community here is that if you don't ask for anything, they won't give you anything. And if you just smile, eventually we go away. I'm not willing to do that, Stephanie. Paula, let me ask you a question. Um, 
because you mentioned the term, you know, reparation, and I don't expect that you caught my show about three weeks ago where we had uh, two of the leaders out of San Francisco uh, who are, uh, who have been at, there's a reparations committee in this uh, state of California. Are we in Washington Mm -hmm. state talking at all about reparations in black communities? We are. The Supreme Court held a forum uh, last spring. Uh, Justice Mary Yu, Chief Justice Stevens and Gallus, it was, it was just mind-changing um, that we're having those conversations. I think the truth of the matter is we don't have Black leadership that is having those authentic conversations. Right? We've had folks talk about it, but I think talk is cheap. What are we doing about it? We need to have black leadership that is speaking earnestly and authentically and willing to hold people accountable, you know, with the governor and other people. It's like we can talk about it, but what are we really doing about it? Um, and so we've got to have those honest conversations. I think with, with Chief Justice Gonzalez, the conversation that he had and some of the legal uh, precedents that he gave us, there's an excellent case for reparations in Washington state. My question is, who's going to pick up that mantle and then lead that conversation and go to the Washington state legislature and say that we've got Democrats in a supermajority. There's 30 of you in, in the Senate. There's 58 of you in the House. We have a Democratic governor, a Democratic AG. When are you going to give the rep- the recompense to the black community that is owed? Um, and we're not gonna leave until we get it. I think what we have here is we have people that are too afraid of the loss of their black power. They're too afraid of the loss of their black position to demand what is owed to the black community. Ooh, a whole word. A whole word, <laughs> ten toes down. People All are, people, and I don't. It's like I said this, and I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day. I said people are too busy worrying about who's going to get the Martin Luther King Jr. Award or who's going to go to the NAACP Image Awards. They're too busy competing for the chicken dinner to worry about who is coming for what is owed to your ancestors and to your grandchildren. <laughs> the award because I'm coming for the recompense, which is how we got a two hundred million dollar CRA. Keep the award. That's how we got the additional cannabis licenses. I am not running for anything ever. I want the recompense. So when you talk about black leadership, did you hear me just go, whew, when you talk about uh, kind of the self-promotion over, you know, fighting for the the greater good. Um, So when we talk about black leadership, can you talk to us about we have a black caucus in Washington, in the Washington legislature. Where is the caucus on many of these issues and what sort of leadership have they taken? Are they concerned with the chicken dinners or are they actually pushing the um, broader agenda for black America, understanding the, you know, the backlash that happens when they do this? But is that happening there? We, we have individual leaders, but we don't have collective leadership. I can tell you, Jamila Taylor and I, I wrote down her bill, 1474 is a covenant bill that is taking on redlining in a way that should be making her Times Woman of the Year. She is calling out redlining because when you don't own your property, then you don't have generational wealth. Jamila Taylor is, is is a once in a generational leader, right? You have Representative Christine Reeves, who is taking on consumer protections um, and fighting inside that institution. You have Representative um, Chapalo Street, who is saying stop pulling over black men and arresting them for the same stuff that killed Tyree Nichols. Um, he is working on an on a appropriation for us to make sure that launch a black child care center, him and Center Saldana is fully funded so that our black child care uh, centers are open so parents have that so that they can work. Um, Representative Deborah Intiman is doing transportation packages and working on wonderful things for us. And so you have some folks down there. Uh, Representative Julia Reed is phenomenal. She's new. Representative Brandy Donaghy is phenomenal, helping us fight against uh, House Bill 1563, a pursuit bill that would roll back some of the um, vehicular pursuit stuff that we got through Representative Jesse Johnson, um, you know, that will make it less safe for our black men on these streets. And so we need to applaud that. But then we need to look at people like our Black Caucus chair, Representative, you know, David Hackney, and we need to go, you know, we need to hold him accountable. We need to say, David, where is the black agenda? Where is your call for reparations? Where is your black agenda for black Washington? 
We are nine weeks into the legislative session and where is your message? And so what I say is we have a ton of things that we have gotten done, like our cannabis um, bills and our, our $125 million um, economic development package that we're working on. But we are not getting those th things done necessarily with the caucus. We're getting them done with other leadership. And so I think there are opportunities for the caucus to step up and lead. There are brilliant individual leaders, but there is not collective leadership. Why is that? And when you, you know, you uh, reference uh, Representative David Hackney, he's out of the 11th district. He is the chair of the Black Caucus. He's been on with us a few times. He came on recently. Um, has he coalesced our Black elected officials? Um, you know, there's there's rumors, there's people talk about, there's a divisiveness in our Black community and our Black electives. Where are we with moving them collectively? Is it necessary? Um, is it too fractured? Is that why they're uh, each individually moving? Like, can you help us to understand? Look, we're all out here trying to help get Black people elected. And so the women on this, in this show tonight are all active in politics, trying to help progress and get people into office. So what's the state will, of that, Paula? I will quote um, John Boehner. John Boehner said, if you're a guy that nobody's following, you're not a leader, you're just a guy out taking a walk. And then he, <laughs> then he quit his job as the Speaker of the House and right. handed the baton off to Paul Ryan. If you're a guy that nobody's following, Representative Hagney, then you're just a guy out taking a walk. Um, it is incumbent upon us when we are leaders to make sure that our leadership style is understood, but it's also important for us to understand the people that we desire to lead. Leading not so much about seeking to be understood, it is about the empathy and the ability to understand. There are some brilliant and beautiful people in the Legislative Black Caucus, House and the Senate. Um, I knew many of these people before they ran for office. I mean, their hearts were pure. Senator Tawana Nobles, um, I've known Senator John Lovett since he was in the House and stood in the well. When I first moved here, I thought he was the speaker because he stood in the well. <laughs> desire to lead those folks, you have to avail yourself and leadership is about humility. The first call of a, of a servant leader is the ability to be humble. So mm -hmm. if you are not collecting the hearts and souls of that caucus, the responsibility is not on the folks that you wish to lead, it's on the leader. And so nine weeks in, the fact that we don't have an agenda for the community, then we have to look at the person leading the caucus and we have to ask ourselves, do we have a leader? Martin Luther King was a leader. Megar Evers was a leader. Rosa Parks was a leader. Harriet Tubman was a leader. I never asked myself if Edwin Pratt was a leader. I don't have to ask myself if some of the folks I see in community, I know that Joy's a leader, I know that Cindy's a leader, I know that Stephanie's a leader. We need to ask ourselves, who is leading the Legislative Black Caucus? Is anybody leading the caucus? Um, and what are we going to do? Because we should be getting more stuff done. I know who leads the AAPI Caucus. I know who leads the Member of Color Caucus. That's Representative Mia Gregerson, she's brilliant. Um, and so we need to have accountability and KPIs from our legislative black caucus the same way that we have for everybody else. Well, you know, one of the questions mm -hmm. I have about that, uh, Paula, um, you know, it's, it's just a belief I've had. Uh, when we look at many of the black elected officials that uh, get into office, I question about whether we have an ecosystem to help uh, them be successful. And so maybe saying that different, um, it, it's difficult in any role that you walk into to go from zero to a hundred without understanding how to navigate leadership and kind of what are the things that we need to do collectively to move people. And so mm -hmm. I just kind of wonder, you know, we have a um, Washington State uh, Office of Equity. Is our Office of Equity involved at all in helping develop you know, the Black Caucus or the leadership that we have in this space to help move move the caucus forward and have them working. I mean, the word I always use um, is alignment um, versus agreement, because we know everybody's not gonna agree on everything, but to get that caucus aligned and moving forward, do we have systems to help them be successful? And if we do, what are the other systems? What are some of the 
what is some of the other work you believe the caucus should collectively be taking on there in the legislature? At Cindy, absolutely. I, um, Dr. J met with them all, uh, I believe their second week, but I, I believe in leadership by example, like I told you all. I moved here in 2016. I, I'm from Florida. And so I, I, I do my business in seven different states. Um, if you look at the Puget Sound Business Journal in 2022, as a non-Washingtonian person who moved here, I had the seventh largest black business. Um, I came to this state, I worked hard, I listened, I availed myself, people taught me things, I had a willingness to learn. And so I have been working in politics for 30 years. I've looked at black caucuses all across the United States my whole career. I've worked with Maxine Waters. I count um, you know, Congresswoman uh, Marilyn Strickland as a friend. The Black Caucus here has the same opportunities as the Black Caucuses in every other state. And so it is, it is not an opportunity that you are given. It is what you make up the opportunity and how you avail yourself. Mm -hmm. I look at Senator Tawana Noble. She was, she was the uh, second female elected after Senator Rosa Franklin. It had been a decade. She's now the whip in the Senate. She's been out there less time than some of these other folks that we're talking about now. She's also vice chair of transportation in some of the most powerful committees down there. She was the 25th vote on cap and trade, a bill that's gonna deliver billions of dollars to the black community and to the indigenous mm -hmm. community. And Joy mm -hmm. knows what I'm talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Senator Phillips did not enter her position as an environmental justice SME. She did not enter that position as a SME in cap and trade, but she availed herself to be able to listen to folks like me and Alyssa Massey in front and center. And she was able to be educated and she had a willingness to learn. And now she is doing tremendous things for fighting for food insecurity, fighting for recess, doing all sorts of things to help our kids. And when you look at her, she's like a flower that was planted, that was fertilized, and she is blooming and producing beautiful fruit. And so the same way that we look at black women and we expect these great things, we need to have that same level of expectation from our black men. In leadership. And so I look at the black women who are elected and how they have availed themselves of the opportunity. And then I look at our black men and I go, I look at all that Jesse uh, Johnson, Representative Johnson accomplished in that one year and what he was doing with the Washington Future Fund now that he's with the treasurer's office. And I say it is about the character and the willingness to lead and the humility of the person and what you make of the opportunity that you are given, Cindy that determines whether or not you are successful in your role as a leader. Mm. Wow. Amen. Because the women are down there. Kicking butt, taking names. Hello. Representative Taylor is in her sophomore year. And I want, I want you to think about this because you and Joy spoke about this. I lived in federal way when Representative Taylor ran for the city council and she did not win that race. I remember when people did not think that she could win her right. legislative seat. Right. And I said, the hell you say. And I watched her outwork all those people. And I remember when Representative Benjamin was chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, and people said you shouldn't challenge her, and then she became the chair. Now she's vice chair of the caucus. And then I see the confidence in Jamila today. I see the confidence. Yeah. Representative Intiman won re-election with the least amount of money of anybody that's ever won re-election. I have a joke. I've seen people sell more Girl Scout cookies than Representative Intamin had when she won in the 47th district, a district that used to be a Republican district. Right. Let me say amen. 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 IE's being spent against her. I'm old enough to remember yes. when Republicans had that district and Joe Fain was the senator. She did something that people say can't be done, wrote her That's off, right. left her for dead. They were getting ready to say mass when she was like, I mean, James Brown came back from the dead to sing the big comeback because she won by such a large right. You cannot tell me what a black woman can do. That's right. Ooh, Paula, I, I don't have a bottle sitting next to me church. the way you do. <laughs> I know it's good. I don't have that bottle sitting next to me. I do want to take a quick commercial break and pick back up. So come back with us in two minutes here. We'll be right back.
What's up, everybody? Trey Holiday here, and I'm so excited that Converge Media is doing a Black History Month takeover at the iconic Sankofa Theater. That's right. We're going to be looking back to look forward in this amazing space as we curate our own segments of Black History with our friends there at Sankofa Theater. Shout out to our partners, Friends of Waterfront Seattle, the Elite Collective, and the Vita Agency for joining us on this amazing journey. Of course, the whole Converge family is going to be in the building February 20th through the 24th. Y'all do not want to miss these segments. Join us and can't wait to see you there. COVID-19 hurt my income, my health, and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in, talked to our lender, and saved our home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHalf.org. That's WashingtonHAF.org. This winter, Seattle Opera presents the world premiere of A Thousand Splendid Sons. Based on the best-selling novel by Khalid Bosaini, this new opera tells the breathtaking story of two Afghan women brought together under the brutal Taliban rule. There has never been a more important time for this story to be on stage. Make this world premiere part of your plans today. Don't miss A Thousand Splendid Sons, February 25th through March 11th at McCall Hall. Details at seattleopera.org. What's up, everybody? You know, me and Besa, my girl, we had to pull up to Market Street Shoes once again, y'all. And you know, we do this every season. We have to get the new shoes, the new boots, and this time, I even got a coat. Yeah, no, you did walk in without a coat. I really I'm did. glad you found one. But their boots were on point. Yes, the boots, the bags. I even grabbed a flannel. Yeah, you did. You know, and I was able to get some hats and everything. I was really impressed. And you know I was impressed because, of course, I got those white boots that you guys see me wearing everywhere these days. Yeah, no, I, I look at your white boots and I'm like, darn it, they only have one pair. Me and Basin wear the same size. Of course, every time we walk out with several bags in hand. Several bags and sometimes even a backpack, you guys. Make sure you check out Market Street Shoes. Yeah, please check them out. Where they go, Basa? Ooh, 2232 Northwest Market Street, Seattle, Washington. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Ooh, we're having a great conversation this evening. We have uh, the CEO of FMS Global Strategies, Queen Paula Sardinius, is on with us. She's the chief lobbyist down in uh, the Washington State Legislature, and we could not be more thrilled to have her firsthand knowledge of what she is both lobbying for and championing uh, for our communities and her influence that she's having on helping make some changes. She announced here on Converge Media on Heartbeat this evening a historical landmark change uh, for social equity here in Washington State. So many fabulous things happening in our state. So I want to welcome her back in along with co-host Joy Stanford and Stephanie Coverson here this evening with her. This is so exciting uh, to hear, Paula. We're so happy to have uh, you down there and helping us to understand what's happening. I want to pick back up and uh, Joy and Stephanie, I'm welcome your questions or comments in this, but I want to pivot a little bit because I heard that there has been a change in the uh, leadership of the Commerce Department. And I'm asking that question because, uh, yeah, yeah, when I when I I want we, I want to talk a little bit about black businesses and uh, the black business recovery work that's happening. And so is that is it true? Did Lisa Brown leave the um, Department of Commerce? Have we filled that position or do we know who's going to fill it? And can you talk to us about the state of black business here in Washington state? Oh, my gosh. Lisa Brown has been an incredible friend and a leader. Uh, Friday's going to be her last day. And I, I can just say the black community has had no better friend and Lisa than commerce. Lisa has pushed billions of dollars um, in economic development from everything from rental assistance and rental stabilization to money to the small business resiliency network to credit recovery pilots technical assistance i could go on for another show um, so first of all we wish lisa plenty of success in her the next journey uh kendrick stewart who is an african-american man who's been named interim director of commerce he will head commerce in the interim kendrick is um, a wonderful dear friend if you don't know kendrick get to know him call him 
African-American man who embodies um, a lot of Lisa's values, believes in the BIPOC community, believes in black small businesses, minority owned businesses, and will continue that journey. Where are we in the process? Um, the governor's office is listening to the minority community. And so um, they are looking to fill the position. I know that Chris Green, who is doing a lot of work at Commerce, is interested. I know that uh, folks have been saying uh, former Senator David Frott is interested. If you don't know who Senator Frott is, Senator Frott was one of our biggest champions in the Senate. Um, I did a proviso with Senator Frock last year that got the money um, to help the Urban League to get their new building after 11 years. Um, Senator Frock is an equity champion. He fought um, things like making sure credit scores were not um, discriminatory, discri practice discrimination in that. So David Frock is wonderful. Um, there are some other names that are being floated, but if you know someone who is interested, Cindy, um, or other people, then you want to get those names over to the governor's office because the position is open. Where are we at with that? We are currently working on um, a, a package that's worth about $125 million that will continue to uplift minority and BIPOC small businesses, $100 million in the forms of grants and loans, $15 million to build critical infrastructure for those businesses that need to uh, hand out those grants and loans, and another $10 million uh, for credit and business resiliency. And Lisa was supporting that ask before she left. Uh, we are working with Senator Bob Hasegawa and uh, Senator Noel Frame to put together that ask. Um, it has made its way through Ways and Means. And so um, I can't say yeah. any more about that, but that is, that is an ask. We have a $125 million I BIPOC small business resiliency ask that's making its way through the legislature this cycle. Yesterday, I uh, attended a um, an event. It was a uh, economic recovery uh, update that was done uh, by one Eastside and uh, one Redmond. And so, I uh, they were sharing a lot of statistics. It was really interesting information. But uh, something that really caught my eye was about the percentage of black women that have started businesses in the state of Washington. And there has been a 44% increase in black women starting businesses. And so there was a conversation going on around that I did not participate in, but I was just listening to it around how do we get more capital into, you know, that 44% increase in, in businesses to help black women to be able to prosper. And um, and there yeah. was quite a conversation about the money is not reaching the micro businesses. So under 10 right. employees, the money's not getting to, I'll just say us. And so with that kind of number, uh, women leaving corporations, black women starting businesses at, at a rapid pace, what's the plan or have you heard them talk more about how we're going to get more capital to black women businesses absolutely so era which is the equitable recovery and reconciliation alliance um, is leading the ask for this 125 million dollar ask but also cindy you know that ollie's taper 100 has the black business equity fund and they are trying to raise millions of dollars to make sure that they can give out these grants $25,000, $50,000 to these small businesses. A micro business is somebody that has between one and five um, employees. And so one of the things that I think was so brilliant about Lisa Brown is she understood that that the one to five is really the sweet spot and it's where a lot of our businesses are and it's the hardest for those businesses to get capital. They don't get the PPP loans, they don't get the SBA loans, and they have the hardest time getting the capital from banks and credit unions. And so last year we did um, House Bill 1015 with Republican Jacqueline Maycomber to, to fund that through CDFIs, right? So there should be some funding available to organizations like Craft3 um, and, and some of these other organizations. So if you're not reaching out to Craft3, reach out to these CDFIs, Horizon, they should have some funding capabilities. But I would say, Cindy, after session, if we're successful in, in holding on to this $125 million, if it passes the legislature, $100 of that is designed to do exactly what you're saying, to work with NGOs and CBOs within your communities across all of the different BIPOC spectrum, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, AAPI, all the different spectrums who know these businesses intimately, who can do that technical assistance, right? That can work with you and say $25,000, $50,000, $100,000. 
that's life changing to somebody that's a sole yes. proprietor or has one mm -hmm. to five. And so these organizations, which are like White Center Development Center, Urban League, Burbar Place, El Centro uh, de la Rosities, you know, uh, Crescent Collaborative, they're all in ERA. They would be able in, in Small Business Resiliency Network, that's another 30 organizations that'll have a pot of money. They're able to work with these organizations and to go in to look at your business, provide you with that technical assistance, look at your financials, look at your business plan, look at your marketing plan and say, what is it that your business is trying to do and what is it you need? Do you need money to help with brick and mortar? Do you need money to make payroll? Do you need help with QuickBooks? Do you need money with insurance? Do you need money to hire another FTE? Do you need money to, to just make payroll? You know, is it 25,000, is it 50,000? And what, what is this money gonna do for the longevity of your business? And then they're able to give you that grant or help you get that loan. That's something, Cindy, that we're working on this legislative cycle. And I hope I, I, all, uh, Stephanie, were you, was somebody saying something? Go ahead. I was going to ask a question because I, I, I saw black female businesses struggling because they couldn't get that PPE. A lot of two in particular that I know of started their business as COVID hit, which we all know what happens then. Um, my question is, where's the education for these small businesses, one, two, five employees, or just them and their families trying to run these businesses, where is the education on how to um, uh, take advantage of the opportunity of these grants? Where is that education? And and do we just go around and give them a business card and say, call Crown Three, which I have no idea, or you know, how do they take advantage of that? If, if you if you were to go on Joy right now, if you would, or to go on to the Urban League site, they have a micro business um, accelerator. If you were to log on right now to Tabor One Hundred site, I know that they have one going on this week. Um, both of those organizations are partnered with J.P. Morgan Chase, but they're both virtual and they're in person. It is exactly what you said, right? Paula starts her business, but Paula doesn't know how to use QuickBooks. Or Paula started her business during COVID, and you know now it's tax time, and Paula's like, her financials are a mess, and she's got to get that together. Tabor 100 offers tax preparation. I know that Michelle's got organizations doing the same thing. I know that ERA, um, they have small business roundtables that are meeting monthly, um, and I know that they yeah. had of small businesses that are meeting and they have small business mentors and so in era is era uh, everybody knows the urban league you can literally go to the urban league's facebook or their website and you will see their small business incubator you can literally go to tabor100.org events and you'll be able to see their small business incubator and these services are all free okay. it doesn't cost you anything uh, the same thing, like Ollie was partnered with a credit union if people were having problems getting their paycheck protection loan or needed help. The same thing with Burbar Place. They are, uh, Andrea is on the board of Craftery. People needed help with the CDFI. And I think what we've got to start doing is we've got to start sharing information. If you're, Ollie is in South um, King County, so she's situated in Tequila. Michelle is in Seattle. Andrea is in the Central District. But you have so many organizations. Ginger Kwan's um, organization is over in Kent. You've got other people that are over in Soto. We've got to start sharing information so that businesses yes. where other people are. You've got a Hispanic chamber that's out in Pasco, that's out in Eastern Washington. We've got the African Chamber of Commerce. We've got so many resources. You've got um, Y-King's organization in Africatown. There are people that love that organization and likes what Y-King does. And, and so, and I say that because there's something for everybody. Being black or being BIPOC is not monolithic. And so if there's an organization that fits your style or fits your need, if you don't want to go to Tabor, but you want to go to the Urban League, if you don't want to go to the Urban League, but you want to go to one of the era organizations, if you don't want to go to the era organizations, but you want to go to the Small Business Resiliency Network, and there's 30 micro organizations within SBRN, but you don't know who they are, then get in contact with Cindy. Cindy will get in contact with me. I'll give you all of the SBRN folks and email them. They are every race, every ethnicity. Find a technical assistance provider in that network that can work with you. What we should be doing is not hoarding information. We should be sharing that. And that's what Cindy's platform's for. Mm -hmm. 
can I just jump in here? Because I, this point, I don't think can be uh, emphasized enough. And so I will say in my experience, particularly uh, when the PPP um, loans became available, um, you couldn't get in um, to go through the portal at various banks. You couldn't get in. And so there were, a, I'll say between eight and 10 folks um, that I know of that had the connections to make a call, make a call to somebody that had, you know, power in, and influence in a bank or a credit union um, to get their application moved forward. And so uh, for those folks who are just um, going into business for the first time, I think that there are many black women in particular who uh, decided that their mental, emotional, psychological health um, was being too deteriorated in the workplace, adding on COVID that started these businesses and you think of sort of the ABCs um, of business, you know, so how is it going to be structured, getting a business license, opening up your bank account, like all of these different things, but much of which uh, that is not told is the networking, uh, being open to receiving information, how to ask for that information. Um, and not that there's a correct way to ask, but I think sometimes we become so worried about what will people say or think, or will they think I don't know what I'm doing? Um, right. And so uh, we don't ask the question. And mm -hmm. and these, these contacts, these networks um, are so critical to have because of, uh, getting access um, to these resources that we might not know about mm -hmm. or speaking our names in rooms of opportunity. Hey, Stephanie, that, that is such a good point. I used to do this um, when I was the vice president of Hapo Credit Union. I would hold a community mixer and we would get 500 people and maybe we need to start doing that here. I would invite mm -hmm. different chambers. I would invite all the mm -hmm. banks, just different people in the area, right? And I would invite all of the micro businesses and I said, whatever it is you need, we're going to have this mixer at our auditorium at HAPO. And you just come out and you just meet people, right? And so whether you were looking for a job or if you needed a realtor, whatever it was, and the first one we had, we had 500 people. And so maybe myself, you, Cindy, and Joy, um, I, I can get a space, happy to provide the food and the entertainment. Maybe we just need to start back doing that because I thought about it, I was like, I used to represent all the credit unions, so I know at least 90 financial institutions. I know at Tabor, um, Seattle Credit Union had a space and had an office, but I mean, I know everybody from Express to BCU, they have an African-American CEO now. Um, she replaced Benson Porter. I'm on the advisory board. Um, we're starting a black bank here. We have the, the power to do all of these things. Mm -hmm. Why don't we not talk about it? Why don't we start doing it? Why don't we have a mixer? Mm -hmm. If you have a micro business, let's put together something where people can come out. I mean, to Tanita Webb's over at Verity. She's CEO. We all know her. She's a dear mm -hmm. friend. Let's invite people out and let's start using our, the power of our Rolodexes and availing resources to folks and saying, what is it you need? Do you need marketing? Okay, we know C-Spot, we know Shikundi, we know different people that do different things, right? We all know Chris uh, over at The Medium, we know Converge. What is it you need and how can we avail people of those resources and open those doors so that businesses can grow? Nobody should should be in a position where they can't get a loan or they can't be connected to a CDFI. I know 15 CDFIs. So why aren't we using our power of connection and bringing people together so that businesses are able to grow? Tabor 100 offers free courses in QuickBooks. So if somebody's got a small business and they don't have QuickBooks and they don't know how to get started, then why aren't we connecting them so that they can go and get that free training from Tabor? Let's let's connect and make that happen for people. Let me let me amplify and add a couple of things to this conversation because I want, I think a, a couple of things, uh, some things that Stephanie talked about and Paula, I love the whole suggestion because I, we are going to mm -hmm. do that. So let's just say that right now we are going to, we have the means, all of us here, we can make this happen where we get, 
you know, black women together and help solve through some of these complexities around business. Now, a couple things I would suggest, and um, if Kendrick is watching or we get notice to him, the processes, let me back up. My success has come in having relationships with people like you all. Right. So I can text any one of you and ask you A, B, C or D, and I can be directed or guided who I need to talk to. Paula, you've been one of those champions who make sure that you send the information out because there are sites, the Department of Commerce, you can sign up to get their um, their information that comes drops in your email box so you could see proposals that are coming out for work so you have an opportunity to understand how to access it. I'm hoping that the internal bureaucracy around how to access that money in those organizations, so a whole nother level of complexity is the bureaucracy. And so let me say that different. So when Small Business Administration um, put out the loans, beyond nightmare to try to access the money because how they That's managed right. it is the people that were coming. I, I'm just going to use myself, right? You make a phone call, you're trying to get information. And what happens is when you come, you get the information and then they put you back into the six to eight week holding pattern to have the second set of questions or the progression of it. By the time you go through five gyrations of that, they've run out of money. And so I'm hoping that um, the legislature is dealing with, you know, I don't want to sound like an ungrateful um, person here saying we're not grateful for the 125 million, but it's still not enough money that has been invested into our communities and then our ability to access it um, everybody's fighting for the small amount of money that's there. It sounds like a big number, but when you look at how many small businesses are out here, it's not. Right. And so everybody's clamoring for that. So I'm hopeful that the internal bureaucracy around how to access capital and money uh, coming out of session this year will simplify a little bit for the communities. That's the second point I will make is that the criteria, and I'll just use King County as an example, the way that they put out grants, um, they do grants as reimbursement grants. And so yeah. you have to actually spend money and file That's invoices ridiculous. or receipts to get money yeah. back. Well, if black businesses had that kind of cash, they wouldn't be asking for grants. <laughs> right? Yeah, so. Whoever's thinking about these sorts of things, <laughs> are you going to do some more forward thinking? Do some more right. forward thinking. Clear, clearly, <laughs> the people that would be most impacted were not invited to the table as they exactly. were imagining this process. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of those folks are are black women who are doing hair, who are doing cosmetology, estheticians, you know, massage therapy. They are their own boss. And they don't have the capacity or the dollars to do all of that. And that became very evident with the PPE. And don't even get me started on the people who apply for PPE in fraud situations. Don't get me started with that. Joy, you, you and I are going to be having wine and watching them go to prison. But, but back to that, <laughs> we, you, we've got it. You've got it. Literally, um, I'm going to connect with you offline. I would love to see you get um, uh, Dow Constantino show and talk to him. We've got to really have conversations about these reimbursable things. People people can't afford to win a $500,000 contract where they have to spend that money and be reimbursed. That's yeah. a hype for black and brown folks because if they had $500,000, they would not be applying for the grant. That doesn't the poor, work. The poor woman who was on the receiving end of my phone call when I said, you've got to be kidding. I said, I'm like, who thinks of this stuff? And why is there such little trust in um, us, right? Why is there such little trust? All you have to do is look at our business. Look how many years in business we've been. Like clearly if, if we have survived five and seven years, we have a little bit of common sense about how to navigate. It just doesn't feel like there's any level. Let me, so you know, my that's, whole corporate days and watching really, how that's tough that, but a lot, Cindy, but they're not the only one. There's a lot of agencies that do reimbursable grants. And so we've got to start going to those heads and saying for BIPOC businesses, that doesn't work. 
Can I, I want to add another layer to this. Mm -hmm. I was reading a report around how grants are awarded to nonprofits. And in this report, it talked about that uh, nonprofits run by BIPOC folks um, are, I mean, less likely to get grants in the first place. And then when they get those grants, um, they are not unrestricted funds. So they're not unrestricted funds. You have to use them for certain things. And also some of these uh, awards also called for like site visits. And so, but these were pieces that white led uh, nonprofits were not subjected to. And so, my hope as we are talking about how to uh, ensure that BIPOC businesses have access to these funds um, is to really take a look at the equitability. Um, so our grants oh, that are available or uh, not targeting BIPOC business owners do they have to jump through the same hoops and do the same dances as these BIPOC yeah. businesses have to do um, to uh, to even move somewhat uh, towards success and sustainability? So that's another piece that I just think is critical that folks um, that are going to be impacted and potential recipients be able to have a say in how these disbursements and application processes are set up. And to add to that, Stephanie, let me add one thing, Paula, before you jump in, because we've had, we had here on Heartbeat three weeks ago, we hosted the debate on Initiative 135 for the social housing. So we had the uh, both the pro and the con argument to that. And the con argument to it were nonprofits here, white-led nonprofits, publicly fighting against an initiative and admitted on air that they themselves have failed. And yet we continue to put money into white-led nonprofits that are not progressing the social issues. So those people are getting paid and drawing salaries while we draw the line in the sand around, we can't trust a black woman or black business to do A, B, C, or D. This is real. And so the funds that we have wasted, the public funds that we are wasting into these white-led nonprofits that are not making equity a priority and changing these systems that their nonprofits say they are, that's a whole nother level of funding that could go into brown and black-led businesses. You were about to say something, Paula? Well, it's propping up a structurally racist system, but when white people fail, it's okay. It's the status quo. When black people fail, it's called, we need accountability. The whole reason we're looking at the money out to black-led groups is exactly what Stephanie is saying. Mm -hmm. Because Stephanie, we want to deconstruct the way that the process happens. The way that this $125 million is supposed to work is it's supposed to go to black-led organizations who are supposed to deconstruct the way the money is handed out. And while there are KPIs and rules, it is not supposed to be a structurally racist process. We are not supposed to have all of these rules um, that has made it more difficult, the 16-page application, the site visits. We are supposed to say, okay, you can co-create and collaborate around this pot of money because you know what works best for your community and you decide how to distribute that money to your community. And so commerce is a vessel who passes the money through to black and BIPOC led organizations. And then you come up with a process within community and then you manage that process is a co-creation process. It would be something that we have never done before. And this is a pilot program that I'm trying to convince commerce and the legislature to let us do. And so the reason I say that Lisa Brown is our friend is because Lisa was the person who was championing this and supporting it. Um, We're meeting with Kendrick this week to get his support as Lisa is leaving, because I think if we can do this, it will be monumental for our community. We will prove, yes, you can give us hundreds of millions of dollars. We are trustworthy, but at the core, we know what is best for our community and how to get those funds out in a way that's responsible and black people can be accountable and successful and produce those results. 
put four black women on a call like this or on a show like this and we could talk forever. I literally, the time just flew by. Paula, thank you for coming on with us this evening and giving us a, a good update on what you're doing, your advocacy, the work that's happening in the legislature. We're so grateful to have you down there that we have representation and hashtag representation matters and hashtag black media matters. Joy and Stephanie, thank you for joining me also this evening on this conversation. <laughs> Next week, we have uh, Senator John Lovett, who is going to come on and talk with us about the chokehold police accountability uh, work that he is working on. And so as we continue to talk about prosperity in black America, we continue to go after these issues with our elected officials and people that we put in positions of power that are supposed to help make changes for us and so we're we're on that so thank you all for joining us this evening we look forward to seeing you next week have a good evening everybody converge media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences our coverage is raw transparent and objective praised by community leaders government officials and residents Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.